Several years ago, the Fort, Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel reported on a home burglary. The owner was out visiting friends. When he returned, the television, the electronics, all of the valuables had all been ignored. All that was stolen was a cardboard box filled with white powder. The thieves thought they had scored some cocaine. But it wasn't coke in the box at all. It was the owner's sister, Gertrude. The box held Gertrude's cremated remains. Here's a funny thought for you. Imagine the thieves trying to get high snorting old Gertrude. If ever there was proof that drugs are a dead end, this is it. Yet the thieves' mistake helps describe the Jewish leaders who arrested Stephen. For they too were trying to get high on ashes, on the remnants of what was dead. For they were putting their trust in the temple and in the traditions and in the trappings of Judaism. The Jews were relying on a religion that looked alive, but it was merely ashes and death. For Jesus had fulfilled the Jewish law. The rules and rituals of Judaism had become obsolete. Christianity was God's new way. The law of God had exposed our failures, but the Spirit of God conveyed forgiveness and provided power for victory. The law condemned. It was grace that saved. And yet these Jews were still keepers of the law. They were snorting old Gertrude, you might say, whereas Stephen was high on the life of God's Spirit, on His joy and love and power and hope. In fact, the last verse of chapter 6 says that Stephen had a glow of glory about him. Acts 7 is Stephen's defense. Now, you remember at the end of Acts chapter 6, the Jews had made several false accusations against Stephen. They had accused him of blasphemy against the temple and the law of Moses. Stephen didn't disrespect the temple or the law. He never discredited their proper role in God's plan, but he knew that through Christ, God was doing a new work in the world. And this is what his enemies failed to get. In fact, this is what many people today fail to get. God is doing a new work, a new thing. He's working in fresh ways through his spirit, by his grace. And this is what prompted the high priest's question in chapter 7, verse 1, which is where we begin. The priest said, are these things so? Are these accusations true? Now remember, Stephen started out a deacon. He was a table server in the beginning. In Acts chapter 6, God promotes him to miracle worker. Now in chapter 7, God uses him as a theologian. It's interesting, at each stage in his service, Stephen was faithful. And we need to remember that God often rewards faithful service with broader service. It's interesting that Stephen's role expanded as he grew. You know, the Apostle Paul may have been thinking of Stephen when he said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith. That was certainly true of Stephen. In chapter 7, Stephen does what Peter did earlier in Acts. He uses an inquisition as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And Stephen preaches a masterpiece of a sermon. 
He surveys Jewish history to show how God was always up to new things. And yet each new initiative was met with Jewish resistance. Call his sermon a panoramic view of Jewish stubbornness. Stephen begins in verse 2. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. He's speaking to the temple crowd, the priests and the rabbis. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. God's plan for his people began with a new work, with a fresh work. God laid it upon Abraham's heart to move from his homeland into a new land. God spoke to Abraham while he still lived in Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilization. Mesopotamia was the birthplace of paganism. The early Mesopotamians, they worshipped the moon goddess. Which reminds me, you know, if they found insects on the moon, you know what they'd be called, don't you? Yeah, that's easy. Lunatics. Just getting off to a great start tonight. Again, Stephen's point is that God went right into a pagan land and he picked out a man to father his people. God did a new thing from the very beginning of their history. In fact, God always does fresh and new works. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father, Terah, was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Abraham died with only a promise. He was a pilgrim from the time God called him to move to the time God called him home. A stranger in a strange land. And you know, this is true of every life lived for God. The Lord doesn't want us getting comfortable in this world. We're all on a spiritual pilgrimage. We're all strangers in a strange land. And to avoid spiritual stagnancy, God keeps us in transition, doesn't he? He's always wanting to do new things in us and through us. But to the contrary, the Jews of Stephen's day were stuck in a 1,500-year rut, resistant to changes that God had in mind, had created a spiritual deadness within them. The believers in Jesus were alive. They were full of the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christians had become fanatics while these Jews remained static. That was the problem. Verse 6. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Stephen's point is that God uprooted the patriarchs. The growth of the faith of Abraham's family had stalled out into the promised land. And so what does God do? He does a new thing. God forces the people down to Egypt, into slavery even, to get them leaning and trusting and learning to lean on God again. A new work was once again needed. And with this new work came a new sign. 
Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. In the first century AD, among the Jews, circumcision was the unquestioned mark of God's covenant with Israel. All Hebrew males carried this reminder on their person. But remember, when circumcision was first enacted, it was on an adult Abraham. Ouch, is what I got to say. I mean, even when the Jews viewed, even though the Jews viewed it as an ancient tradition, at one time it had been a new work. Once again, his theme. God is always doing a new work. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen recounts the means that God used to get Israel to Egypt. It started out with an act of rebellion. Isaac's sons were jealous of their brother Joseph. They feigned his death, smeared his coat of many colors with blood, and then sold him to slave traders en route to Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. Joseph's story, what a story it is. It's it's, uh, tempting to want to just settle down and talk about Joseph. You remember his story. He went from the pit to the prison to the palace. It's really one of the most fascinating stories in all of the Old Testament, especially when it's viewed in parallel to the life of our Lord Jesus. Think about Joseph and Jesus. Both were rejected by their brothers. Both were thrown into a pit or a grave and left for dead. Both rose again and ascended to the right hand of their king, And God judged both of their rejections with a famine. In the days of Joseph, there was famine in the land, in Egypt and in Canaan. And the Jews who rejected Jesus, they too became subject to a famine. A famine engulfed all of Palestine. As a matter of fact, later in Acts, we're going to see Paul collecting famine relief for the church in Jerusalem. Once again, God judged the rejection of Jesus with a famine, as he had with Joseph. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. You remember, Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him the first time they met. It was the second meeting that opened their eyes. And isn't it interesting? Likewise, the Jews failed to recognize Jesus as their deliverer at his first coming, It's only when he comes again that they'll know him and repent of their sin and embrace him as their Messiah. And then verse 14, Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Though God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, remember, the only parcel he ever formerly owned was a burial plot. Isn't that interesting? Abraham indeed was a wanderer. He died with nothing but a promise. 
But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, for God fulfills his promises, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. The Egyptian dynasty of Joseph's influence was sympathetic toward the Hebrews, but it was ousted shortly after after Joseph died. The succeeding dynasty was brutal. They feared Israel's growing numbers. Their Pharaoh ordered the genocide of thousands of Hebrew infants. And so again, God did a new work, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Exodus chapter 3 recounts how Moses' faithful mom, Jochebed, floated her baby boy down the Nile in a wicker basket. The miniature ark got stuck in the reeds and happened to be retrieved by Pharaoh's daughter. She took the child as her own and raised him in the palace. It was all orchestrated by God's providence. Verse 22, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It's ironic, the Pharaoh who killed the Hebrew babies financed Moses' education. Even paid for his room and board. He raised Moses in his own court. Again, God is doing a new work in his own way. And Moses was mighty in words and deeds. First century historian Josephus provides us some extra-biblical insights into Moses' upbringing. According to his writings, while growing up, Moses was such a beautiful child, had such natural endowments that people would go out of their way just to see him. They'd walk by the nursery just to put their eyes on this Moses. He was an incredible baby. We had the same problem when I was born. But (laughs) Josephus also says that as a young man, Moses, this prince of Egypt, led a regiment of the Egyptian army against the Ethiopians. He won a great victory. Moses also was a military commander. You know, here Josephus says that he was mighty in words and deeds. That's interesting. For later... When God calls Moses at the burning bush to be his spokesman, Moses balks. And do you remember what excuse he gave? Moses complained, O Lord, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Well, not according to Stephen, not according to Acts 7. Apparently, Moses was selling himself short. Stephen said that Moses was mighty in words as well as in deeds. Apparently, Moses was a powerful natural speaker. It wasn't communication skills he lacked. It was confidence. Growing up in Egypt, Moses had been popular and privileged and talented and intelligent and articulate and courageous and victorious. Literally, Moses was on top of the world until. Now, when he was 40 years old, It came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. 
It may have been a midlife crisis. But somehow Moses learned that he was Hebrew. And he wanted to understand his roots, his heritage. It's been said, (coughs) it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know who you are. Moses had to find himself, you might say. And so he retraced his roots. This is why it's so important that we as Christians make every effort to understand who we are in Christ. How can we head in the right direction unless we know who we are and what that means? Well, as Moses walked among the Hebrews, he saw one of them suffer wrong. And so he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Apparently, it was an instinctive reaction. An innocent Hebrew was being abused by his Egyptian taskmaster. And Moses took matters into his own hands. He defended the man. And in the violent confrontation, the the Egyptian died. Moses thought the Hebrews would view him as a hero. But not so, verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting. and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men... You are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Aha. 24 hours later, and the news of what Moses had done had already become public knowledge. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. In Egypt, Moses must have sensed God's call upon him to deliver his people from slavery. But rather than wait on God's timing and God's methods, Moses had taken matters into his own hands. His botched efforts ended in disaster. Moses had to flee to Egypt. He started a new life, got a new wife in Midian. We're told he even had two sons. You know, it's interesting, after being rejected by their brothers, both Joseph and Moses moved to a foreign land, took for themselves a Gentile bride, had a family, and then later returned a second time to their people Israel. Both plights beautifully parallel the life of Jesus. After Jesus was rejected by the Jews, he too took a Gentile bride. Who's that? That's you and me, the church. He's had many sons. And like Moses and Joseph, Jesus will return a second time to the Hebrew, to his brothers. It's then that they'll receive him as their Messiah. Stephen is saying that God's men and methods might change, but his purposes remain the same. And then verse 30, And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Moses' life breaks down into three 40-year periods. First, there were 40 years in the court of Pharaoh. Second, 40 years on the backside of the desert. And then finally, 40 years leading the nation back to the promised land. It's interesting, God, it took God 80 years to prepare Moses for the mission that he really had in mind for him. If you're 80 years old tonight, hey, you may just be getting started. Apparently, it took a lot of time to mold a Moses. I wonder why we're so impatient. 
Often we're too eager. We're, we too like to run ahead of God. We need to learn our lessons and wait for his timing. It was D.L. Moody who noted, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody. And 40 years as Israel's leader showing what God can do with a somebody who knows he's a nobody. I like that. God had to humble a haughty Moses before he could use him. Has to do the same with us too. Verse 31 is back to Moses' experience at the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Now verse 30 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But the voice that speaks to him from the bush identifies himself as God. And that is certainly how Moses treats him. He dares not look on God. He fears God. The Hebrew word translated angel simply means messenger. And I believe more often than not, when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, it's none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. Here the angel speaks as if he's God. The messenger proclaims to be God. Who could that be? I believe it's a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus. Stephen here implies that it was actually Jesus who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Isn't that interesting? Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God will send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Again, God works in a new and in an unexpected way. His deliverer would be the very man that the Hebrews had rejected. And this was the mistake that the Jews made with Jesus. That's Stephen's point. They too rejected Jesus. And yet he was the man that God would use to deliver them from their sin. And lead them into a new life. Verse 36. He brought them out. And who is the he here? Stephen is speaking of the angel of the Lord. The one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Look at verse 35. Stephen is saying that Moses was sent out by the hand of the angel in the bush. That's Jesus. And it was the power of Jesus who worked through Moses to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. He writes, after he had shown wonders and signs... In the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus was the source of Moses' miracles. Do you understand what Stephen is saying to these Jewish leaders there in the temple? This one you've rejected was the one that's been involved in your history from the beginning to the end. Jesus engineered the plagues on Egypt. Jesus parted the Red Sea. Jesus sent manna from heaven. Jesus brought water from the rock. 
Ironically, the traditional Jews that Stephen is addressing are rejecting the same Jesus who had been so instrumental in the development of all of their history. Again, Stephen points to Jesus in verse 37. This is that Moses, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will hear. Stephen quotes Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like me that Moses predicted was none other than Jesus. This prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 had always been uh, seen as prophetic of of the Messiah. He says, this is he, that is Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. The angel that revealed God to Moses on Mount Sinai was Jesus. He was the messenger, and yet the Jews rejected him then, just as they are rejecting him now. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. During the 40 days that Moses was atop the mountain with God, receiving the law, Israel's Israel's faith waned. They desired a God that they could see. And so they asked Aaron to forge an idol. This is so ironic. For the true God had just shown his superiority over idols. You remember the ten plagues that God had used to pry loose the grip of the Pharaoh from the necks of his people? They were ten direct assaults on the gods of Egypt. Each of the plagues was directly aimed at a different Egyptian god. God proved his superiority over the Nile God when he turned the water to blood. Over the fertility goddess when he sent the frogs. The sky God when hail fell from the sky. Even the notion of a divine Pharaoh when his firstborn son was struck dead. Each of those ten plagues was aimed at ten of the gods of the Egyptians. And now, just days later... The Hebrews are clamoring for Aaron to make them idols, to take them back to Egypt. It's nothing short of astonishing. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And here's an insight that Stephen provides that we don't read about In the law of Moses, not only did Israel bow to the golden calf, they worshiped the stars, the host of heaven. They delved into astrology. The Jews looked to the creation for guidance rather than their creator. With no faith, they lived in darkness. And here Stephen quotes Amos chapter 5 verse 25 when he says, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Remphon, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Molech was the god of the Moabites, Remphon, an Egyptian demon. 
It seems barbaric to us today, but Molech was a hollowed out statue that could be stoked with fire, like sort of a burner on your stove. Then Moabite parents would place their babies in the arms of the burning Molech to appease his anger and attempt to coax from him a plentiful harvest. We shudder at the callousness and the brutality of the ancients. We modern people, we would never do such a thing. And yet we are just as evil Or parents today abort babies on the altar of convenience or career or choice. Molech worship is still all around us. It just goes by names like a woman's right or family planning. And notice Stephen now speeds up his survey of Hebrew history. Israel's idolatry lingered for nearly a thousand years until God turned the people over to the world's most notorious idolaters of all. The Babylonians, in verse 43, Stephen mentions that the Jews were carried away beyond Babylon. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and the Jews were deported from their birthplace, or deported from the place God had given them, Jerusalem, back to their birthplace, and the birthplace of idolatry, the land of Babel. There they lived in exile for 70 years. But it's interesting, this was the vaccination that cured Israel of its idolatry. That time in Babylon had a profound effect upon them. In Babel, they developed such an abhorrence for idols living around them that they never again followed idols. Upon their return to the land, the Hebrews had a new problem. It was no longer idolatry, but now hypocrisy. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Remember, Stephen had been accused of disrespecting the temple And of course, the tabernacle was the temple's predecessor. To speak against either was tantamount to blasphemy against God. The Jews were proud of their temple. They thought of it as a sign of God's favor. Hey, as long as that temple stood, Israel was assured of blessing, according to their thinking. But Stephen is about to show them why that was a false assumption. The tabernacle stood until David, but then God did a new thing once again. Verse 46, David inquired about a temple. David said, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. David, remember, was a man of war, and thus God didn't want him building the temple. And so it was left to his son to build the temple. And yet God taught David a bigger lesson. Stephen here quotes from Isaiah 66. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? See, Stephen argues and he says that the prophets support him that the God of Israel was never confined to a temple 
or to a house built with human hands. God is far bigger than a temple. The God of Israel made the universe. The earth is just his footstool. No structure can contain him. And God will continue his work with or without a temple. You know, we need to be careful that we don't try to confine God to a temple. Or another way to say it, put God in a box. We need to be careful. For religious folks like to limit God's domain to the four walls of their church, to the environment in which they're comfortable. How ridiculous we are. God is Lord over all things. God is Lord over the workplace and the ballpark and the home life and the political arena. God defies all limitations. You can never put God in a box. You can never tell God what he can and can't do. Christians forget that God is bigger than our programs and our traditions. He does whatever, wherever, whenever, however it pleases him. God can even do a new thing just as he was doing in Stephen's day. Well, Stephen turns up the heat here in verse 51. He says to his accusers, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen says, I see a pattern here. You guys are resistant, as resistant as your forefathers. You know, at the time, the Jews were the circumcised and the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. The Jews took great pride in being the circumcised. But Stephen calls these Jews uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're insensitive, he tells them. You're deaf to God. He calls them stiff-necked or unbending, inflexible. He wraps it up. You Hebrews are resistant to the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And the answer was none. You know, every time God raised up a prophet, the nation tried to put him down. Every time. Once they tried to stone Moses. They sought to murder Jeremiah. On several occasions, he was thrown into prison. You remember the Jews killed the prophet Zechariah in the temple. And after sticking the prophet Isaiah in a tree trunk, the Hebrews sawed him in half. They hated the prophets while they were alive. Yet after they were gone, they revered them as wonderful men of God. Israel was a nation full of hypocrites. And Stephen lets them have it with both barrels. He says, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. The just one was a term for the Messiah. Jesus, Stephen is saying that the Jews killed the prophets of old who had foretold the coming of Jesus. And now you have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The angel of the Lord had led Israel. We talked about that. In other places, we're told that angels helped convey the law to Moses. The Jews had angelic help. They knew the truth, but they were too stubborn to obey. It's amazing. An angel could appear to some people and it still wouldn't cause them to submit to God's will. 
And how did the crowd standing there in the temple that day respond to Stephen's sermon? Did they pat him on the back? Good word, Pastor Stephen. Did they give him the high fives when they left that morning? Did they give him big hugs at the door? No. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. In other words, they snarled at him. These priests looked like pit bulls and clerical collars. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, unintimidated, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Suddenly, the physical realm peels back for Stephen And he gets to peer into the eternal realm. And he sees God's throne. And he is so amazed. For he beholds the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Mark 16 verse 19 tells us. It speaks of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And it says, After the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Notice Jesus sat down at God's right hand. In fact, every time in the New Testament that it speaks of Jesus' heavenly high priestly ministry, he's always seated at the right hand of the throne of God, except here. For the assumption here is that Jesus was so excited about the faith and the faithfulness and the courage of his man Stephen that he rose to his feet to welcome him home. Stephen sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. Then they, that is the Jews, cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They rushed him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Apparently, this Saul, this young upstart rabbi, had been the ringleader of the opposition to Stephen. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In Stephen's final hour, he quoted Jesus. In his final hour, Stephen maintained a Christ-like attitude until the very end. He forgave even his enemies, even his executioners. What a witness this man was for Jesus Christ. It's been said, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seeds of the church. It was certainly true in Stephen's case. His death caused this young rabbi named Saul, to begin to consider Christ. Chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And this was the Saul who would later change his name to Paul, Christianity's greatest champion. 
Isn't it interesting? Stephen's Jewish executioner became Christianity's apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was part of Stephen's legacy. After his testimony, Rabbi Saul was haunted by what Stephen had said. He mulled it over. God used it to soften Saul's hard heart. We're told Saul consented to Stephen's death. The word consenting consenting can also be translated voting. It implies here that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court, which had condemned Stephen to death. Now, what's interesting here is that we know that one of the requirements for being a member of the Sanhedrin was marriage. You had to be married to be a member. At the time, Paul may have been married and had children. Yet in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, you remember Paul was talking on singleness and he says, I wish that you all were single just as I am. What happened to his wife? Well, most scholars feel that after he was converted, Paul was abandoned by his wife and his kids. Even today, when a Jew converts to Christianity, it's still common for them to renounce, be renounced by their families and spouses. Paul paid a steep price to follow Jesus. Well, verse 1 adds, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Thousands of believers in Jesus now worshiped together in Jerusalem. This was a happening place, man. Can you imagine the church at Jerusalem? The fellowship was sweet. The miracles were mighty. The growth was explosive. The grace was exciting and attractive. The Spirit's power was tangible and thrilling. There was high energy and there was great harmony. The Jerusalem fellowship was one happening church. No wonder everybody wanted to stay in Jerusalem. These believers in Jesus were so buzzed with what God was doing inside the church that they had forgotten what they were called to do outside the church. They were neglecting Jesus' parting command. You remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he told them, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, here the disciples are shaking up Jerusalem, but what about the rest of Judea? And up the road there in Samaria, not to mention the ends of the earth. Enough with the fellowship, it's time to ship out. The church in Jerusalem had become a holy huddle. Now, well, just remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God said, go. Now, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, He has to shove the infant church out of the nest and force her to fly. And God uses what to do it? Persecution. God uses a little persecution to get some houses on the market and move out a few reluctant missionaries. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit cultivated a wonderful fellowship in the church, but now the Spirit breaks up that fellowship and focuses the church on evangelism. Fellowship is so important. We we, we understand that. But we should never forget that we're going to spend eternity with each other. We've only got a few short hours left to reach a fallen world with the gospel.
verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Church members made sure Stephen got a decent and honorable burial. Well, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul had gnashed his teeth, but he had been cut to the heart. He couldn't shake Stephen's witness, so he tried to strike out against him. Sometimes, sometimes, the church's greatest enemies, its most fierce critics, are actually those closest to the gospel. They're haunted by it. They're fighting against it. That's what they're doing. Saul was a proud, stubborn Jew who loved tradition and couldn't believe that God was doing a new work. Saul was asking, how can a carpenter from Nazareth eclipse the prized institutions of Judaism? Why would God's spirit make his home in the hearts of Galilean fishermen instead of in this glorious temple? And yet he had. God was doing a new work. Jesus was better than all of those Hebrew things. That's why I believe Paul later wrote the book of Hebrews to prove just that. Paul was stiff-necked at the time. Back in Acts chapter 5, Saul's teacher, Rabbi Gamaliel, said that this new movement of God would go away. If it was not of God, it would go away. But it was of God. It was here to stay. It was multiplying, and Saul couldn't stand the thought that he could be wrong about Jesus. And so he decides to try and put an end to it himself. He mounts a ferocious attack. We're told Saul made havoc of the church. The word translated havoc there is a verb that describes a wild animal mangling its prey. Saul was violent. He went berserk with hatred. He turned into the equivalent of a rabid dog. He spent every waking second plotting the extermination of Christians. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And I'm sure when these believers were persecuted, when the persecution intensified, they started wondering why. Some may have thought God had forsaken them. And yet God had his reasons. God has his reasons for what he's doing in your life. God used the persecution to light a fire under them, to move them out to share the gospel. That's when Philip went down to the city of Samaria And preach Christ to them. Miracles occurred in Samaria. But first, Christ-centered preaching went on. And this is always the first wave of a spiritual awakening. The preaching of God's word. Mark 16 tells us that where the gospels preach, signs will follow. Notice too, here's another faithful deacon taking on greater responsibilities. Like Stephen, Philip also goes from table waiter to missionary and to evangelist. He heads to Samaria. This was a place where Jesus had paved the way by, remember. It was here that Jesus had promised the woman at the well a drink of living water. You remember the story, John chapter 4. Afterwards, he stayed two days in Samaria. And we're told in John 4 verse 39... Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Jesus was known in Samaria. Philip's message fell on some believing ears. 
But this was new territory for the church. The Samaritan people were not considered Jewish. They were interracial. They were part Assyrian, part Jew. Judaism had been for the Jews, but everyone was about to realize that Christianity was for all mankind. This was going to be an incredible leap to go from Judea to Samaria. The Samaritans were the first cross-cultural mission field. And then verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Miracles seen in Jesus' ministry, miracles seen in the church in Jerusalem were now happening in Samaria. God was doing a new work among a new people group. And what's the point of all these chapters tonight? God loves doing new things, a new work among new people. Notice too, Philip was not an apostle and yet he worked miracles. I find that to be very interesting. Don't think God's power is reserved for the leaders of the church. Who knows what God might want to do with you and the power he might want to pour out upon your life and through your life. Then in verse 8, the result. And there was great joy in that city. There is always great joy where the word of God and the spirit of God combine to produce the work of God. It's been said, a church that has the word without the spirit will dry up. A church that has the spirit without the word will blow up. But a church that has the spirit working through the word will grow up. And that's what was happening in Samaria. Yet verse 9 begins, but. And if you've been serving the Lord for long, you realize that no work for God is without its challenges, including Philip's revival in Samaria. And next week, we'll study the issues that he faces.